Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Fred Copestake, and he is the author of Win-Win Selling and also a kindred spirit, both in terms of our hairstyle and our approach to sales, sales management and alignment. So, Fred, welcome. Would you mind giving us a 60-second rundown on your background first, please? Sure, yeah. So, it's Fred Copestake. You've got the surname right, which is cool. So I'm founder of Brindis, which is a sales training company. I've been, what, the last 20 years, I've been around the world 14 times, visited 36 countries, and worked with over 10,000 salespeople. But more recently, that's why I took some time to write the book, Selling Through Partnering Skills. It is about win-win, but it's called Selling Through Partnering Skills. And for me, this is all about a modern approach to winning business. It's, it's how we can capture the stuff that really makes a difference and get people up to date get them doing the stuff that is really going to help them collaborate more with customers. That's for me what, where a modern sales professional can make a difference. And so, yeah, you know, that's me in a nutshell. You know, 45 seconds, I think. There you go. So th- th- there is a lesson here that uh, one should do one's preparation in more than 15 seconds beforehand. I know that you do selling through partnering skills. And I was confusing you with another guest who wrote Win-Win Selling, which is Doug C. Brown. Um, So my huge apologies. So that's my egg on the face, first of all. So this is all about being authentic. So uh, when you fuck up, you fuck up. Let me ask you this. There are some common problems that you see and I see all the time that people don't ask themselves about. So let's start with those gnarly questions that people don't ask but should. I think it's actually very simple. People don't ask the question, why, enough. And and this isn't something new. If people just ask, why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Tell you what, do it five times. I'm not going to claim I've just invented something there because you know that I haven't, and so do lots of people listening. I mean, that's been around since, what, 50s, Toyota? Five whys? Long before. Well, that's what why has. But when they actually said, just ask why five times to get to what the actual problem is, then you can start to really answer the question of what's going on. And so, you know, that's part of that process of writing the book and just all all that experience I've had, you know, working with with, with customers around the world. I've looked at it and asked why and why and why so many times. And I think if we want to categorize the three biggest problems, they fall into busy, 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 oldie, worldie, and the muddled mindset. <laughs> They're like kind of little buckets for catching a lot of the stuff that's going on, you know, so maybe oversimplifying a bit, but they're, they're the problems. If, if we understand them, if we recognize them, we can do something about it. Okay, so let's talk about busy, 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 first of all. Okay, so busy, busy, busy. In a nutshell, the one-liner, that's about being ineffective. This is where people waste opportunities it's very tiring and it becomes very stressful for people. And it's all about just doing the wrong stuff to get the results. People kind of end up rushing around doing a whole load of things and they think this is great, but actually when you step back and look at it, utter waste of time. But because it's not working, we pump it up, we do more and more and more, and it just becomes a self-perpetuating circle, you know, and a spiral of spiral of doom. <laughs> so on that note, then let's apply the five whys. So why are people busy, busy, busy? One of the reasons I think is that I think management have got to take a lot of responsibility for this. We crank up this, come on, let's get out there, rah, 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 let's do it, Mm, a tiger, all that sort of stuff, which is great. And don't get me wrong, we should not, not do that. 
but we've got to have the right direction. We've got to be applying that stuff in the right way. So it's we kind of get all this energy and stuff, but it's just not being applied well. That's where I, I think it is. And, and people then become kind of obsessed with this production and things, and they just won't step back and do things right. So why is management so fixated on fire, aim, warn, rather than warn, aim, fire? And why, why are they so, so fixated on activity rather than meaningful action? Because uh, it's easy, because it's what they know, <sighs> partly to do with one of the other elements, which is a muddled mindset of what are we actually trying to achieve here and now. There's a lot of things when you start breaking the whys down, why that happens. And, and you know, you just you have to feel for the poor people that are experiencing this and doing it probably with the right intention, unfortunately, but achieving nothing for it and kind of winding themselves up into this, well, you know, say spiral of a spiral of almost failure, to be honest. In the preamble to this, we talked about asking ourselves better questions. Why are managers not st- stepping back and asking themselves better questions like, why are we doing it this way and why isn't it working? Because they're busy, busy, busy. <laughs> and it's this self-perpetuating circle. It's like, oh, this isn't working. Do more, do more, do more. I think sometimes people feel a bit guilty by stepping back and giving themselves good thinking time because you feel as though you're not doing something. Whereas actually, as you're going up the tree, you know, it's for your brain, it's for your, it's for your thinking, it's for your strategizing. And, and not doing that actually means you're not doing the job properly. You, I, agree. I don't know if uh, you've read it, The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And one of the best takeaways from that is every week, a minimum of 40 minutes with you, a pad, a paper, and a pen, and one question at the top. No phones, no computers, and you sit back and you spend time answering that critical question, the most important question you have to answer this week. And what that normally does is throw out more questions, and it forces you to think intelligently about your issues. But the problem is that very few managers schedule that time, and if they do, they sacrifice it uh, for putting out fires. And this points to, I think, the second of your unasked questions around oldie-worldie, which is using an old paradigm to a new context. So why is it that people are still applying old approaches that are no longer appropriate for the modern age? Yeah, risk of sound repetitive, busy, 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 not taking time to step back. But I guess what's happening is people aren't, aren't recognizing that things change you know maybe they're they're comfortable with stuff that has worked in the past or it's what they learned or it's what they understand and what they can speak about but by not taking the time to just sort of stop and consider and realize you know that that stuff you're doing isn't effective yeah it is old-fashioned and actually i'm thinking some of the stuff that people do isn't just old-fashioned it's it's damaging you know it's bad practice you know and you're going to be you're potentially going to be upsetting and alienating customers by carrying on working that way. But it's what we know and we like what we know and we'll carry on doing it because it's a comfort zone. It's really interesting. One of my clients, White Rabbit, has a very nifty piece of tech and the AI, uh, you run it against your data and it spits out who your ICP is today, your ideal customer profile. And what very few people recognize in management is that your ideal customer profile subtly shifts over time. And so where we were working with uh, one prospect and they hadn't changed their ICP in over 30 years. And when we ran the data, 
they were selling, they were selling to exactly the wrong customers, and they were wondering why they were having such a hard time. Sales went up forty percent in a quarter just by shifting their ICP. That's a simple example of being stuck in tradition. When I had my office, I had a poster up of the Pamplona Bull Run, and uh, the headline ran "Tradition." Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. And I think far too many people don't ask themselves about what needs to change. What needs to stay the same is another good question. But too often, we don't adapt. And buyers have changed dramatically. Since 2009, the context in which buyers operate has changed dramatically. And they've moved far closer to a business-to-consumer sale than uh, our old vision of a business-to-business sale. So they have access to the sum total of human knowledge with a few clicks of a mouse. So their information actually is getting closer to what economists claimed customers used to have, which is perfect knowledge of a market. And they are very well informed. They're savvy. And if we are not adapting to how they buy and understanding the syntax in which they go through. So first of all, they make space for an idea or a product or a service. Then they start to look passively. Then they look actively. Then they start to make trade-offs between the different options available to them. And then they make their decision on the basis of what they exclude. And then they buy, then they make first use. And if the expectation is met, then they continue to use it. Otherwise, you've just created a customer from hell. Now, part of the problem that I see is that there is this massive disconnect between marketing, sales, customer success, account growth teams, operations, And every time there's a handover, it's clunky and disconnected because everyone is trying to operate well in their own silo. So what I'm really curious about is, given what you know, having worked with all these thousands of different salespeople in different companies internationally, what is it that makes the standout exceptional uh, organizations different from the humdrum run of the mill? It's actually pretty simple, which is why it's so frustrating. It's just to flip. It's to flip your attention. And you've done that. You started talking about these guys. They were doing what they did and what they know because they talked about the stuff that they like, very self-centered. And you said, hang on, let's have a look at the kind of customer that will be interested in this, the ICP. Oh, right, yeah. We can go and talk to these guys about these guys. Yeah? What are buyers up to now? You just spoke about that. Again, People want to really talk about themselves. They're very, they're the oldie world is self-centered. I've got this information. I'm the salesperson. This puts me in a position of power. I might let you look at my catalog if you let me. As you said, well, you can stick your catalog. <laughs> I've got yours and your competitors and probably stuff that even you don't know exists all open on my screen now. So it's just to flip that and say, let's be really customer focused. Let's think about them. What do they need? What's their pain? How can we talk to them? How can we understand them? How can we help them understand them? So so in many ways, it's, it's not massive rocket science. And it's what's good sales practice has been saying for quite a bit, actually. That's not 2020 or 2021. You know, it's consultative selling, solution selling, value based selling. It's what does that mean for the customer? How can we help them there? But we still want to talk about our things. And, and, and part and part of another little kind of symptom you see of this, if you like, is that people then go super technical. You know, not only am I going to tell you about my things, I'll tell you about it to the ultimate degree. It's like, I really don't care. You know, I care about me. I don't, do you know how your thing works? 
good. I'm pleased you do. I don't need to know. It could be fairies. It could be like little unicorns in boxes doing sort of magic, magic stuff. Well, you know, whatever it is. But if it helps me do what I'm trying to do, and you've understood that with me, happy days. To, to, to deal with the oldie worldie stuff, to go modern, to get up to date, flip. Flip your focus. Almost as simple as that. What, one of the themes that really pisses me off that you hear your average sales trainer blathering on about is becoming a trusted advisor. <laughs> there we go. I figured that might trigger you. Um, so let, let, let's uh, have you go off on a rant on that one. So it's like the pumpkin of Bora. You've waved that massive red flag at me, and I'm off screen. For those you know? of you listening only on audio, Fred has gone a, a, a shaded beetroot. His blood pressure is going through the roof, and there's a lovely vein pulsating on his forehead. Um, off you go. It's well, in a nice, calm way, you know. It's like you're a trusted advisor, good for you. But whether you're my trusted advisor or not, I'll be the judge of that. Just because you say you are, just because you put it on your LinkedIn profile, just because I decide, the customer decides. It's the same as value. You know, I'm going to tell you what value is. Well, good luck here, because I'm not really sure what it is yet. If you help me find what value is, then I might put you on that trusted advisor status. But just saying you are does not make it you. Just one thing before I totally talk myself into it. I'm being quite calm, I think. I admire the intent. I get why people are saying it. But I just think we need to be a little bit more careful on rocking up somebody saying, Marcus, I'm your trust advisor. Mm, okay, Fred, good luck with that one, eh? <laughs> Anyone who does that, as far as I'm concerned, has lost all credibility. I think what we need to earn is trusted partnership status, which is what the appeal of your book was. For me, being a trusted partner means that we help each other get better. We're down and dirty in the trenches with our sleeves rolled up and we're taking the flak together. We're with you every step of the way. Uh, we don't do the drive-by shooting and only turn up when we're up for renewal. We're with you at every stage. And what we're focused on is ensuring that you're getting the value that you've paid for, that we're helping you raise adoption rates, increase consumption. And by helping you to do that, we're creating the conditions for expansion of both the scope and the services and products that we uh, provide you with. But that's done in partnership. You don't, uh, I think you should be thinking about partnering with and selling with rather than selling to or throwing products and services at the customer. And this speaks to a theme that I'm really passionate about at the moment, which is buyer safety. You know, real partners always have their customers' safety front and center in everything that they do. And I see that sadly lacking. Your thoughts? We know we're on the same page with this. And it's absolutely right. You know, yeah, that's why I took the effort to, to really understand partnering, partnering skills, what those elements are, and how any salesperson in any role and I honestly believe that it's not just about a channel thing. It can be direct sales, and it can actually be reasonably unsophisticated, uncomplex. If you use this as your ethos, get your mindset right, then you are trying to work with people. You have their best interest at heart. Of course, you want them to be safe. And that's just not that they are not going to get eaten by wolves or whatever kind of you know the old-fashioned <laughs> thing would be. But the psychological safety, that they feel comfortable. The people make are taking risks all the time with decisions, which, which are only getting bigger and bigger. So if we can help them with that, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the partnering mindset helps us. And the other thing that I would just add into that is that advice does not have to be that you recite that 
damn technical manual. Again, you know, it's still there online, <laughs> but it's just got bigger. As we're speaking, more technical stuff has been added to the internet. Advice can be asking a really good question. It doesn't have to be giving something as such. But the best gift is if you can gift me the ability to open my mind to think about something a bit differently. You don't have to tell me to do that. For me, it's probably the worst way to get me to think about something because I just think about why it's wrong. So hey, you could use a very sophisticated questioning technique, but asking a question to get me thinking, get customer thinking, that can get you into that trust advisor status because it's like, I love meeting with this person. Whenever they come, God, do I have to think? And I get little kind of thought starters and stuff. I think questioning skills really need to get beyond the bland, vanilla, mundane surface level. When you prepare for a meeting with a prospect, you should have between eight and 12 questions that deliver massive insight. They help the prospect or the customer shift their thinking in such a way that they say, you know, I've never seen it that way before. Wow. What, that's possible? Even getting, that was a good question. That's the best thing a salesperson can hear. And it's a, oh yeah, I just made it up. They don't just get made up. I don't think I've met anybody who is that smart that they can make up those kind of insightful questions. Okay, yeah, I know that you're raising your eyebrows for those of you not watching. Okay, I've only met one person who is so smart that they can do that off the cuff. In in fairness, (laughs) I've done it so often. And what, what you need to do is questioning is partnered with listening. Your prospect will feed you the insight you need to ask the next question. And you've got a framework. And you go prepared with some really good questions. But if you are not adapting to the customer in the moment on the basis of their responses, then I think you do them a disservice and you're underplaying your hand. Absolutely. Okay. No, so we're we're, we're on the same page in that it's preparation. That's the point I was making is you can't just rock up and go, ah, I asked this a couple of weeks ago to somebody. Well, it might work. It could be the right thing. And it could be that you just looked out that your brain has realized that the customer is similar enough that that will work. But yeah, you've got your your dozen, half dozen questions. When you use those as a Kickstarter, that's when you then need to think, well, I don't go from question one to two. It's that's going to take us on a path. I've got to listen. I've got to adapt. I've got to go with them. I've got to give them space to think. If it's a good question, you've got to give people space to think. Right. Now you've touched on four really crucial things, which I want to emphasize. The first is planning, preparation, and rehearsal. Uh, You do the planning and the preparation, and then you rehearse. And you rehearse the different permutations of, if I ask this question, what are the possible responses? And if they respond in this way, what are my options, A, B, C, D, or E? And rehearse those. And I, I would typically rehearse people down to three to five levels deep, at least. The next thing is, you've absolutely made the point. When you ask a question, shut the fuck up. Give them time to answer and only ask one question at a time. And when they answer, make sure you listen to the end and then pause for three to four seconds because you should not be formulating your question while they are still talking. If something comes to mind, by all means, make a note of one or two words as a bullet point to remind you. And then when you come out uh, and, and then make sure you review what they have told you so they know that they have been heard and listened to. When you come out, make sure you do a written debrief. 
so that you capture the lessons and particularly capture the great questions so that you can reuse them. That's how I've developed my questioning skills. And it's served me incredibly well. And all my clients who do this become master questioners. And I mean, in three months, you can become spectacular at questioning. And those questions deliver insight. They don't just gather information. They don't just deliver understanding. They deliver insight. Where I'm training now is saying to people that nearly all your questions have to be insightful. To ask the questions, you know, so tell me, how many officers have you have? What places are they located around the world? How many employees have you got? You don't get many of those questions before somebody says, oh, come on. Have you not got internet at your place? <laughs> you know? yeah, you're never going to get invited back. Oh. And people who ask those kind of bland, tedious housekeeping questions have a one in eight conversion rate the first to second meetings. Now, you should <laughs> that be... high. <laughs> if it's that high. On phone calls, you'll probably get one in 14 invited. When you think about the monumental waste of time and money and opportunity that represents, that's a, that should be a sackable offense. Now, if you think about it, if you can get seven out of eight of your first qualified meetings turning into second qualified meetings, that means the tariff on you to do prospecting, the drudge, is significantly reduced. And not only that, these people will refer you. They will hand deliver you to people within the organization so you can have those multi-threaded conversations and that you will increase your conversion rate. You'll shorten your sales cycle. But if you don't do that, then you deserve to be treated like the pariah you are. And then you become busy, 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 because guess what? You've got to do eight times more. But it's funny, you know, you talk about rehearsal. Um, I was talking to a group just recently and I was talking through MetaMirror. I was talking through visualizing the different angles that this meeting can be viewed from. And the more I was explaining, the more the deeper I was going, they were looking at me like I was some kind of lunatic, like I'd never been in a sales position before and I didn't know what it was like in the real world. Because I was talking to them about, write down your questions. And some of them were already thinking, well, that's a waste of time. I need to get on with asking things. I don't have to ask a question. Okay, fine. We might just get an open question then if we're lucky. But then I thought, I asked them to so think about when you're asking the question, hear yourself ask it. Think about what it is you're actually trying to get from that. And what do you think the response is going to be? Now, imagine the person sat opposite you. Picture that. See them, you know, and now it'd probably be on the screen. So look at the screen. Imagine them coming back and what they're saying, why they're saying it. Because then you can start to run that conversation through in your head. And we know the brain doesn't always know what's real and what's not real. So you've actually done the meeting successfully once. So there's still a couple there who are going, oh, okay, this might be half interesting. A lot of them are probably like, I don't know, doing something else, writing quotes. Don't stop me on that one either. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went on and said, you know, if you really, really want this meeting to go fantastically, now switch positions. Put yourself in the seat of the person that you're asking questions. Imagine yourself on screen, or if you're in real life, imagine yourself on the other side of the desk. You hear the question coming from you. What does that make you think? What does that make you feel? How are you going to respond to that as your customer? And so some of the guys just go, well, that's, that's really hard for us. I said, yeah, I didn't say it was easy. Cole said, well, I don't know what they'd answer. I said, well, <laughs> you've got to work harder on your prep then because the questions aren't just the information for you. It's for them to think. And so you've got to be inside their head, even having a guess at what they're going to say. 
So I could just see some people totally dismissing this as stupid advice that was just a waste of time and let me get on with my eight calls because I'm only going to get one follow-up. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I, I think the penny dropped for a couple. And, you know, in fact, I'm following up with them in a, in a week or so's time. I want to see the ones that did it, and I'm, I want to see how successful they will be because they will be. So this raises a couple of important questions for me. First of all, to uh, reaffirm what Fred has just said, that the position of buyer in a uh, sales simulation or role play is the most powerful position. That's where you're going to learn the most. Or as an observer watching that interaction go on, not as a salesperson, interestingly enough. The second thing that's really important here is that if you do this level of preparation, and my recommendation is for every minute you are in front of the prospect, a minimum of three minutes of rehearsal. Now, on top of that, you've got the planning and preparation, but three minutes of rehearsal. And remember, your prospect is nowhere near as prepared as you are. And they're coming to you for leadership and a safe pair of hands. That's why they come to salespeople. There's that awful statistic that goes around that says that they're 68% of the way through the buying decision before they invite in a salesperson. There was a McKinsey study that came out in December of last year that says 30% of buyers want a seller-free buying experience. That's an indictment on us. 67% think that sales and salespeople are morally corrupt. Now, you have no right to turn up and waste their time. We are the engine that drives the economy. People come to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. And if you turn up and you have not done that preparation, you have done them your company, and every salesperson who follows you a massive disservice. I can promise you this. If you follow me into a sales meeting, you should never be embarrassed to be a salesperson. I'm often embarrassed to be a salesperson because of the people who come before me. And that's an obscenity. We, We are critical to the success of our clients. And when we think about that whole piece around being the customer's partner, co-developing the solution with them, helping them work through and identify what the root cause of their problems are, being along with them throughout the entire journey, not just up to the point of transaction, but afterwards, when we do a proper handover to customer success, when they're using the product, making sure that we stay with them throughout that life cycle so that we're helping them to identify other ways that they can utilize and gain value from the investment that they have made. That's what partnering is about. But I just don't see that happening. Maybe 2% of salespeople do that. And it's a travesty, an absolute travesty that it doesn't happen more. And again, I have to ask the question, why is it that management allows that to continue? Because I see them as the biggest perpetrators of the problem. Before we come back to that one, and I made a note, because I make notes, good salesperson here. I'm allowed to give a sales hack. Do you give hacks on this podcast? You can, but we're, just do the fucking work. But yeah, go on. <laughs> I didn't think you'd like that word. I hate it. I hate hacks. Can I give some good, solid advice that actually does, joking apart, make a massive difference? Yeah. And not many people do this. I don't get it because it's such an easy thing to do. Send a bloody agenda. Yeah. Send an agenda. If we're doing it virtually, send the agenda as a Word document. Don't get it embedded in all the text with all the phone numbers to ring if you don't get on, the disclaimers, this, that, and the other. A Word document which looks as though it is something different because you put a little bit of work into it. 
it's not actually massive work. The impact on the customer is that you've done the work and you've done your prep. Well, because you have to. So it's going to make you do the prep, but it's also going to give the impression to them you've done the prep. You're already on the front foot. You're already impressing people. Or in the grand scheme of things, your meeting is staying in the diary. Because when people look at that patchwork quilt and go, I've just got too much to do today. Who's that guy? I don't even know what that meeting's about anymore. Now I've been that off. Oh, look, it's got something attached. Oh, right, there's an agenda. What's in the agenda? Okay, you can mess. You can put logos in. Well, that takes fractions of seconds. Shows you thinking about them. Purpose. Have the purpose front and center. What are we trying to achieve with this meeting? What's in it for me as the customer? Why should I care? Ooh, oh, that's good. Oh, I'm looking forward to this one now. Or, right, no, it stays. I'm doing that. Who's going? Who's going from their side? Who's going from your side? Putting in who's going from their side makes you think about what do I need to say? What do I need to do? What do I need to ask? What should I be asking? Indicating who might be in from your side, particularly if it's senior people, might help them think, ah, we ought to match this up with somebody else who's senior as well. So you can use this to get more people from the decision-making unit into the, um, you know, into, into, into the field of scope. Then what do we do? I would, I would always label it as draft. So if you want to add anything, please do. So I'm indicating, look, we're in this stuff together. And then the bullet points are absolutely aligned so that it's all, uh, 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 are indicating it's about them. Yeah, we're going to talk about your business, your business challenges, how you want to do this, where you're going, strategy will alter depending on the meeting. But the first half of it, three quarters, 90%, 95%, it's about them. And when you see that that's going to happen, again, that meeting is far more attractive because it's, oh, this guy isn't going to come and read me his catalog. You know, so it, I guess I hate the word hack, but actually, it's not a difficult thing to do, but so many people do not well, because they're too busy, too busy I, being busy. I think this also points to something else that we have to keep uh, firmly in mind, that people pay for outcomes. And unless that agenda is focused on outcomes that matter to them, it's going to get binned. So when you turn up, make sure you're clear about the outcome that they want to achieve by the end of the meeting. And be also clear about the outcome that you want to achieve by the end of the meeting. Because partnerships are about creating equal business stature. And um, we have different roles and we are there to serve them. But it doesn't mean that we uh, operate without mutual respect, without uh, mutual uh, and equal business stature. And one of the challenges that I see many salespeople create for themselves is they give away their power because they put the customer on a pedestal. The customer is the person with the problem. You are the expert in solving those kind of problems. If they don't have the kind of problems that you are really expert at solving, you have an, an obligation to disqualify yourself. And I think part of the problem here is because people are busy, 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 and they're doing what they've always done, that they have weak, inconsistent, or empty pipeline. And if you have a full pipeline, you have choice. And so often, I see salespeople turn up needy, desperate, and broke. They're still paying off the jar of Nescafe they bought in Safeway in 1986, paying 36% APR because they bought it on a credit card. Dead right. And I just, I mean, just while we're still on the, the agenda thing, it's, I was talking again recently with a group about this, and again, I see the pushback. People going, oh, no, again, too busy. I'll explain the value, but, but the pushback this time was, yeah, but that sounds a bit formal. What? 
Oh, so you want your meetings to look a little bit kind of off the cuff, ad hoc, unprofessional, do you? No, I didn't say that. No, you did say that. You said you couldn't be bothered to do this because you want to just make shit up as you go along. Well, tell you what, you're not going to be doing that with me as a customer for too long. Okay, I was putting words in somebody's mouth, but to be fair, from all the other things they'd said throughout the session, I think they were fairly accurate, to be honest. <laughs> you weren't putting words in their mouth. You were What you were doing was you were replicating what a customer is thinking. Were, yeah. This is a rank amateur who is a waste of my time. How can I get this clown out of my office? Well, I'll ask him for a proposal or a quote, because most crap salespeople will think, oh, we've got one. And then they will spend 80% of their working life facing people they should never have been spoken to, has been speaking to because they should have disqualified them on the last call, or they should have advanced the sale and agreed a clear next step. But the problem is they've got no value. And so the only thing that they have to talk about is price. So in the absence of value, to quote my friend Rob uh, Jefferson, in the absence of value, the conversation will descend into price very quickly. And if that's happening to you, it's because you are not relevant, you're not timely, and you're delivering no value. While we're on value, there's um, there's a guy I, I love speaking to, a guy called Mike Wilkinson. I don't know if you've ever spoken to him. He wrote, wrote a book called The Seven Challenges of Value. And I use this. I, I, you know, I have to thank Mike because I dine out on this phrase. Let's use it now, bluntly. <laughs> Which is, when people say, what is value? The answer is, don't know. And salespeople are like, no, 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 I'll tell you what my value is. No, no, stop. Don't tell me what your value is because you're probably wrong. Your value is what I think it is. So it's it's the customer who defines what value is. Don't you be telling me. Yes, you can have a reasonable guess at it because in your experience, this is where you have tended to work with customers. But Mike's elegant expression is value. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. You know, a bit like the old Scooby-Doo band thing. It's like, you know, <laughs> we've got to work out what the value actually is and then we can unmask it and then we can start to talk about it. So I love, I love this concept. Value, what is it? I don't know. It's a mystery. Let's let's work on this together, customer, and we can then define it, what it means in this situation. Yeah? But that doesn't mean you don't prepare, go, well, I don't know what value is. He doesn't know what value is. knows what value is. Well, let's just have a chat. Let's talk about football. That ain't going to uncover the value. It's... Right, what are the questions, what are these insightful questions that I can ask that are going to move us towards them thinking, yeah, this could be something that is interesting and where we can work on stuff together. So we have value, it's a mystery. There you go, thanks, Mike. (laughs) I've got my monthly mention of you in. (laughs) That value is what the customer perceives as valuable. Exactly. if, If you have not done your research if you don't know the market in which they operate, if you don't understand what it's like to be a CEO, a CFO, a CMO, a chief operating officer, if you don't understand what it's like to live their life, the fires they're having to put out, the objectives that they're working towards, their strategy, what they're trying to implement as part of that strategy, then you've got no business being there. The problem here is that salespeople... I'm a big fan of lazy salespeople, but you need to be intelligently lazy, not just bone idle. I think you should hire salespeople for being intelligently lazy in the same way you should hire officers in the military for being intelligently lazy. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. And uh, salespeople for the same reasons. You don't want to waste your time on unproductive pursuits. You don't want to waste your time or their time on non-opportunities. You've got to be timely, relevant, 
and valuable. And it's they, they are the arbiters of what's valuable. They are the arbiters of whether they trust you. They are the arbiters of whether you make a good partner or that you will be somebody that they want to do business with. And we forget this because I think far too often, salespeople who do not have a partnering mentality see a customer as just an organic ATM machine. And that, that is a travesty. I think that, that's just plain bloody rude. It is, actually. But when you put it like that, it is plain bloody rude. You know, as we say, it's old-fashioned. It's ineffective. It, don't, it, it just doesn't work. And luckily, I don't think there'll be people who can get away with doing that for much longer. That breed was dying out. I just think it's going to die out faster. And in, in many ways, it's not a bad thing at all. Right, that sounds horrible. No, but no, it's no. going to leave space for the people who are productively lazy, or however we want to call it, <laughs> smart, efficient with their time, or you know, whichever, but who are doing the good stuff the customers like, that their organization is going to like, which is bringing the, the results, yeah, and are making a difference. They're making a difference because of what they say and do. It ain't reading catalogs to people. It ain't telling them what they should do. It's working it out with them. And that's the partner mindset. So let, let's dig into that partner mindset. Because, I mean, I love the book. And if you're not using partnering skills in this modern age of selling, then you really have no business being in sales. Frankly, you're going to be replaced by Alexa or Siri or Google. And you know, that's why marketplaces exist. So people don't have to talk to people like you. Talk to me about what genuine partnering skills look like. Sure, yeah. And so I, I came across this concept of partnering skills or partnering intelligence, PQ, a couple of years ago. I was, I was doing quite a lot of work in channel, as, as I know you do. And I was thinking, well, you know, partnering, people talk about partnering a lot. And it isn't really, it's just a label. But how can we help them do this better? And so I was doing some research and I came across this PQ. So I often describe it as the, the lesser known cousin of IQ and EQ. Doesn't make it any less valuable. Doesn't make it any less real. This is properly research stuff. A guy called Steve Dent was doing a lot of work in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, around big corporate alliances. And was looking at you know, what made the difference there. And to cut a long story short, he came down to the, the idea that organizations don't partner, people do. This is a key thing. So, right, people make the difference. You know, we talk about human to human and all this. Absolutely, dead right. But what he did is he looked at the people who were involved in these relationships, these relationships, isn't it? And what were the skills that they had? And he codified them. He was able to say, look, let, these are what they are. If you have these, or if you develop these, because you can develop them all, then you are going to get better at partnering. So I saw this stuff and thought, well, actually looking at those, they can be applied to any sale. You know, what we've just been saying for the last 40 minutes or so, these things will give you that, that kind of ethos. It'll give you the mindset. It'll help you do it better. When I looked at them, they just spoke to me. That's every salesperson. That's every modern salesperson. And if it's not, then, well, you won't be a modern salesperson because <laughs> you won't be a salesperson for much longer. What are the elements? The six elements. The first one is trust. Trust, foundation of communication. All good relationships are based on it. You know, it's something that we've got to look to build. We've got to look to earn. But there are things we can do to speed that up and to make it happen better. Next one, win-win. Win-win focus. Yeah. So yeah, I could have written, I could have written the book win-win <laughs> because there's a big element of that which runs through what any modern salesperson has to do. And that's not just understanding 
what does the other party want is being, as you've already said, very clear about, I need this from the relationship as well. It cannot be one-sided. Otherwise, the opportunities partner isn't good. It also leads into how we can, you know, how we discuss stuff, how do we negotiate, how do we solve problems, you know, deal with conflict, because there will be, yeah, but how we deal with it is important. Interdependence, not independence. Salesperson needs to be independent. No, no, no. Not now they don't. Your success is going to be dependent on other people, whether that's in the customer organization, whether it's in your organization, probably whether it's at home. You can probably have that one in as well that other people are going to have an impact on your success. So let's understand what interdependence is. How can we get more comfortable with giving up control? What else? So we're on to three. Move on to self-disclosure and feedback. So this is giving information about yourself, sharing stuff that you might not normally do, that you might in the olden days have thought, oh, no, no, that, that wouldn't come across as professional. Mm-hmm. And I know we, we've sort of, we, we've spoken before and we sort of the whole authenticity and, and that kind of thing. Actually, giving some genuine information about yourself does make sense. And that, you know, these are my needs, these are my expectations. Back to win-win. Hopefully, the other party will do that because it takes two to tango. But we also need to give feedback. And then this is something where, again, you know, some old-fashioned salespeople will shy away from saying to the customer, hey, you're not helping me here. You are not helping me help you. We've said that we would do this stuff. You're not doing your part of the deal. And they'll go, oh, no, 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 I can't say that. I can't say that to the customer. It'll ruin all the relationship. Well, it'll ruin the relationship if you don't give them feedback about stuff they need to know. Absolutely. Well, comfort with change. Salespeople sell change. What's our worst enemy? Status quo. <laughs> so we've got to be comfortable with it ourselves. We've got to understand it. We've got to be able to lead people through it. We've got to understand how it impacts them, the human responses to change. <laughs> no one, well, I say no one likes it. Less people like it than find it difficult or dislike it. And we're doing all of this with a future orientation. You know, what are we aiming towards? What's our vision? What's our goal? What are we trying to achieve together? And let's not go, yeah, but we might not be able to do that because we tried that before. Yeah, we tried it before, but the tech wasn't available. The thinking wasn't available. We weren't ready for it. We didn't understand it. Take those six things and just thread them through any type of selling. I just think it's going to power up. <laughs> we'll have to hack some power-ups, Marcus. What do you have to <laughs> it's, it's going to, no, joking apart, it's going to power up how you think about what you do as a modern sales professional. And that, that's why I get so, so excited about it. It gives us a way of understanding it probably quicker than fumbling around trying to work out what it's going to look like these days. If you adopt all six of those behaviors and mindsets, then you become very attractive to your prospects and your customers because it's not about you. You've surrendered the outcome that you want in favor of the outcome that they want. And um, you're also because you're focused on the win-win or no deal, um, your, your mind is attuned to identifying when you need to disqualify yourself out of the frame. Because you're focusing on being interdependent, you're doing difficult work together. This is where you are ready to get down and dirty in the trenches with them. So you're building trust, you're delivering great service, you're relevant, you're engaging with clarity. You know, ambiguity is the mother of all food bars. You know, it, it, it's, it feeds mismatched expectations. It feeds disappointment. 
but clarity where both sides know why they are there and what their respective roles are and what the boundaries are is really key. You talked about being ready to enter into constructive conflict. And I think that's really key. And at the end of the day, customers measure your value on the basis of their success. And that is driven by the outcomes that they have paid for. My pal, Bob Mester, always, uh, and this is one of the most insightful things that I've ever heard about sales, is that customers rent outcomes. They never buy your product forever. They rent the outcome for as long as it delivers. And we see perfectly happy customers leave you because you are no longer relevant because the outcome that you're delivering no longer serves their current need. And this is where Barnaby Winter's concept of no longer using the C word, customer, and always treating paying prospects as, um, or speaking about them as paying prospects, thinking about them as paying prospects, because it forces you to constantly think, how can we increase and improve adoption? How can we maximize consumption? How can we constantly create value? And where is the opportunity to expand the scope and value and extension of our services? That's how you stay relevant. And I think one of the other problems that I see is at a cultural level, and we said we'd come back to management, is managers are fixated on new logo acquisition and new business. But actually, any good business owner knows that what you keep matters more than what you make. Making good profit allows you to reinvest. It creates strong foundations and strong fundamentals. It allows you to recruit better talent. It allows you to invest in new products and services and uh, to engage and spend time, quality time, with your customers. But if you're always scrabbling around for new business, then, I mean, that costs you anywhere between six and 21 times, I've seen, to acquire the customer. And if you look at the cost of Mercedes versus Tesla, Mercedes spent 150 times more to acquire a customer than Tesla did. And they sold about, I think it was about 22% of the uh, number of cars that Tesla did in 2019. Outcomes is where the action's at, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, we ought to to replay this and count how many times that word has been used because it is so key. I keep saying it, outcomes, 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 let's up the word count because it is that key. It's not accidental that when you look at the framework I use in the book, because I go, PQ on one side, all good selling stuff on the other, because I actually... I don't, I'd hate to come across as that all old-fashioned selling is rubbish. It's not. There's some really good, solid stuff there, like having a good, solid process, like preparing, like asking great questions, whichever flavor you prefer to ask, you know, focusing on value. I mean, there's a lot of good things there. So if we've got PQ on one hand and we've got good sales stuff on the other, we need to bring those together. So the framework I used, I adapted a customer success framework. Yeah, not a sales process. I looked at what customer success is doing. It was actually one that Cisco used to work with. and went, you know what? I don't need to tweak that much to make it rather than it's the whole delivery and making sure they are getting the outcomes. It's how can we focus on the outcomes already or, or up front so that then they're easier to deliver afterwards? And that's what I did. You know, the V-A-L-U-E, the validate, align, leverage, underpin, evolve, they... If you, you don't even have to look carefully, and I say anyway, 
they come from that thinking of when we've got the customer, they need to have a remarkable experience. They've got to get exactly what it is that we're promising them. That's what we're trying to do. Validate. Are they right? And you said this already, disqualify out. And this isn't just a case for me of, you know, medic, bant, Scotsman, whatever. It's also an element of psychological qualification. Yeah. Let's take two to tango. Do they operate with a similar mindset? Yeah. Or are they just a nightmare to work with? They're just idiots. They won't share anything. Well, that, that ain't going to go anywhere. Looking at their values and not just what's written on the wall, the stuff they actually do, that becomes an important part. <laughs> you know what I mean? An important part of the validation part. Aligning, aligning, homework, prep. Where do I think I can add value? Who are the people involved? Where have I done similar sort of stuff? What might that look like? But of course, it's a mystery. I have a good idea. It's probably the janitor, you know, usually is. <laughs> it's going to be doing, so it's probably going to be that. Right. So now I've got enough stuff so I can go in, I can leverage that information. I can hold meetings. I can have interactions. I can do stuff that they think is valuable. I think it's valuable. We're doing it because it's advancing us. It's moving us towards this point where, hey, we can do some stuff here. Actually, I want that proposal. And I want a proposal, not a quote. You know, I want those ideas, those stuff that you're writing on my whiteboard that you're throwing out there that we are we are coming up with. Let's put those together in some kind of proposal, implementation plan, mutual action plan, and you underpin it, underpin it, underpin, prop it up, prove it, so that we can work together on that and evolve. the The, the relationship is going to evolve. You know, we'll move that forward. And like I said, now we're in and we're working, we're delivering, what more can we do? Because we know how we work. We're in the best position to spot more opportunities. Yeah, the experience is fantastic because actually rather than go, oh, you're a customer now, <laughs> bye, we're going to invest all this time and effort and money in finding new logos. Actually, we're going to invest time and effort and money on making sure what we do for you is fantastic. You're going to love it. You ain't going anywhere. You're going to give us more work. And you'll be saying to all your mates, oh, I'm working with these guys. They're they are so good. Why? What they you make my life easier. They help <laughs> me get my job done better. I hit my KPIs. They're decent to work with because they get it. Well, they get it because they've got good partnering skills. And they'll probably have an element of that naturally. But you can, by understanding them, refine them and get better at this stuff deliberately. Well, Fred, no one pops out of their mother's womb able to do this. You've got to learn. It's an acquired skill, and you've got to put the time and effort in constantly to keep honing and refining and getting better. And this is one of my big bugbears. I listen to salespeople whining and bleating about, my company doesn't invest in me. It's your career, okay? You are responsible for your own development. If your company happens to invest in you as well, that's great. And they should. They absolutely should. But if they don't, it's incumbent on you. So um, just to finish the uh, value acronym, so validate, align, leverage, underpin, and evaluate. evolve. 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 Yeah, move, move that, move that, move that, move that onwards. Yeah, which will hopefully be validating more stuff. It <laughs> will be aligning more, which is leveraging. So a little bit like, you know, you have to, I talk it through sequentially because you have to in a linear conversation, but they kind of all operate together. A bit like the six elements of PQ. Things aren't A, B, C, D, E anymore. It's not neat and nice like sort of sales process was back in the, say, 1950s. That's why I talk about frameworks. That's why I sort of talk about the elements of so that we can bring those in. We can understand them. We can refine them. We can tap into them and use them as and when 
is appropriate to become really good at what we do and to become a trusted advisor. <laughs> because the customer says so. They refer to you as if they pin that medal on your chest. They say, oh, I need some help with this. Hmm, what Fred do? What Marks do? Because whenever I chat to them, there's usually some good idea. And if it's, even if it's, actually, that's not really my area, but I know a man that can, woman, that's equally part and parcel of the way a, a, a good mum sales profession would operate. Yeah, it's really important. But I, I see very little of this happening being driven by management. That worries me because uh, management is stuck in their old ways and they do what was done to them. I put this largely down to the fact that they, they have no runway and uh, most managers have to learn on the hoof. And that's a mistake too. So, I mean, we could rant for hours on all of this. But tell me this, if you were to give some advice to a sales leader, not manager, but a sales leader, in terms of the qualities they should be looking for in their management layer, what advice would you give them uh, in order to ensure that the next generation of salespeople is being brought up well? They're being taught the right manners. They're being taught the right mindset. If in doubt, whenever asked a question like this, say curiosity. But that is because curiosity is usually the right answer. You know, if somebody isn't curious about what is the new way of working, what is happening, how can I become better, then you've not really got anything that you can work with. It's hard to instill that. You know, the, the stuff that we've talked about oh, is trainable. We can do that. Curiosity, probably harder. It's, it's far better to have somebody starting with it and is sort of naturally interested in things, which probably, but not, not mutually, but probably means they themselves have a growth mindset, which if they do, they are likely to want to share with others and to help others grow and help them move along and probably get fed up with people that don't. So you've got somebody who really wants to get better, who wants to know what's going on, wants to know the latest, who wants to then start to use and apply that, has got the ability to, well, they probably have if you're considering them in that level. And hopefully you're not just buying, you're not just, buying, you're not just getting the best salesperson because not the best way to recruit. <laughs> Look at you biting, you actually are biting your lip there. <laughs> but that growth mindset, so that then they will help people, they'll share, they'll they'll move others on and, and probably not tolerate people that don't. And actually that's that's probably quite a good toleration not to have, you know, and, and they will build a, a team that that is advancing and adapting these new ways because stuff is changing so quickly, so, so quickly which is why stuck in old ways is really like stuck out. It's looking more and more obvious now. They're my initial thoughts on that. <laughs> Fred, we've come to the top of the hour, so we need to wrap up. But tell me this, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What am I wrestling with at the moment? New ways of selling. <laughs> you, know, you know, I like to think I've got a pretty good grasp on how sales people and how the sales world need to operate. But I want to share this stuff. <laughs> you know, I want to get it out there. You know, I want to train more people. And that ain't just because that wants to keep the roof over my head. But you know, I, you can probably hear I, I'm passionate about this stuff. I, I want people to get better. And so I'm just constantly, <laughs> with my curiosity and growth mindset, <laughs> trying to work out the best way that I can put this stuff in front of as many people as possible. And when I say that, this is this kind of where I'm struggling because 
you know, what has been a way of, look, this is it, sign up, you've got to do it. I'm trying to get comfortable with the fact that it's probably not for everyone, you know. And you know what? It's far easier to be working with the people that are already aligned to this, that have got the right kind of values, that kind of already get it, if not actually do it. And it's how can I best put it out there to have that impact as, as best as I possibly can? You know, that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> that's what my personal development plan looks like at the moment, Marcus. Okay, well, three of the freshest sources of thinking in sales today are Bob Mester, MLE SDA, and his book, Demand Side Sales, is brilliant. I've interviewed Bob a couple of times, and he is breathtaking. Um, he's an engineer by background. He was trained by W. Edwards Deming, so he's got that mindset, and he's always asking why. But um, his challenge, he's got 5,000 patented products out in the market that he's designed and developed. And his big challenge was, how do I get people to buy these things? So he looked at it through the customer's eyes, not as an engineer, but as a customer. Corporate visions have some amazing insight and great resources, and particularly around when to tell which type of story and what you do that will prevent you from making sales or will cause you to uh, take a happy customer and cause them to put you into an RFP at renewal. And I think the freshest mind of all is a guy called Simon Bowen with his uh, models method approach. It's just stunning. I'm smiling because I'd seen that you'd interview him. And I thought if Marx is interviewing him, it's probably that he's got something sensible to say. <laughs> Pop <Pops> today, obviously. <laughs> There's a gap in the diary. That was lined up, but I actually saw he got a little webinar that he was running. So I, I signed up for that. It was at stupid o'clock at night, but I watched it in the morning. And it is it's very, very interesting. It's breathtaking. Okay. I'm working with him with a client at the moment. And the ability to convey a, a sophisticated solution in three to seven minutes in a way that everybody gets and then can take and sell internally. Wow. Just breathtaking. I loved that. I knew I would because, I mean, if you look at my notes as we're talking now, it's just a bunch of boxes and circles and arrows and a couple of words because that's how I think. So he was preaching to the convert, you know. <laughs> what would you recommend people read apart from, obviously, your book? Well, yeah, that, that'd be a damn good thing to read. <laughs> Straight away. Come on, come on, all the stuff we've talked about and what. Funny enough, the, the thing that I've just read, which – Again, it's aligned. It's my own thinking. It's part of my own curiosity and journey. It's called Everyone's the Same Age Now by a guy called uh, David Allison. And he talks about value graphics. Yeah, he, he's, he's fiercely, um, is he fiercely anti? He's not a massive fan of demographics because he says they're pretty pointless in that you can have people of the same age who just think totally differently. They think, well, actually, yeah, that's kind of obvious, really. So how can we, how can we start to segment and work with somebody? Start to work and start to think about what are their values? And so he's got these values. He's got this. I don't want to spoil it because you might want to interview him, but he's got this, this, this big database they've been working on. It can segment people's values. Every human across the world shares a number of values. And he's got these archetypes, which when you look in the book and it breaks it down into, into sort of 10 main ones, you think, yeah, I can see the ones which I align to. You know, they are my values. And I looked and I started doing some of this stuff with my own product offer, my own kind of way of working now. And realize that actually, if I talk to people with a similar set of values, that is a far more refined way in which I can work with people where I can make that difference. So, so this is a little bit work in progress at the moment. And I've only just recently 
come across his work and start to apply it. I interviewed him and he's, he's a brilliant interview. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's, that's a very interesting piece of thinking because even if you don't subscribe and take on the whole value graphic thing, the very worst you can do is just step back and think, yeah, I probably need to think about my customers a little bit better and how they think, <laughs> which would do no salesperson in any way, shape or form any bad, would it? Yeah, that's what, that's what I've just been uh, geeking out on a little bit at the moment. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back in time and advise the idiot Fred, age 23, what sort of bit of advice would you give him that you know when he whispered it in his ear, he'd tell you to go and boil your head? That book that Andrew Brown suggests you write when you're 26, so in three years' time, Andrew Brown's going to come and say, you should write a book, Fred. Don't huff and puff and think he's an idiot. Bite his hand off, do it, and start to get not only your own thinking refined, but that kind of stuff out there, because you'll thank yourself in the future. <laughs> you'll get better at writing in the ones that you write when you're near your 50s. <laughs> that aren't quite so hard work. That's what I would say, because he did say, this is the sort of thing you should do. And I was being distracted with some other stuff. You know, rugby was a big thing in my life at the time as well. And so I was kind of juggling two things. Hindsight 2020 vision, if I'd have put more effort into that, yeah, we might have been in the same position, might be a bit different, who knows. Interestingly enough, my experience of writing a book is actually it's a lot easier to do than you think. And if you blueprint the book beforehand, and I came across this methodology a while back, uh, which I might talk about at some point. It took us six weeks to write Making Channel Sales Work. It took two years to have it edited. But... There was a lot of politicking going on there. But actually writing the the book itself was relatively straightforward because if you structure it in this way, you can write in three to five minute increments. So you can write when you're sat, you know, when we're back to some semblance of normality. If you're sat in the car, you can knock out the next couple of paragraphs. And if you're sat in the waiting room, you can continue to write it. And if you structure it and you design it beforehand and you write with the conclusion is the first thing you write and you write to the conclusion, then you get there very quickly and you write along a straight path without the meandering. I've learned that now. And I actually, there is another one in the pipeline that I'm, I'm working on at the moment. And it is a lot easier because you understand the importance of the framework. There's a bit of beginning, bit of the end, like you say, you know, what right towards that conclusion and what you want people to do as a result of it. It'll happen a lot easier. So yeah, remind me if um, everyone is the same age now. Is that the actual title? Everyone is the same age now. Yeah, and that's by David Allison. David Allison. In fact, let me just double check. We are all the same age now. Value graphics: the end of demographic stereotypes. Okay, brilliant. So, Fred, how can people get hold of you? LinkedIn is is the best way to do that. Um, I'm on there quite a lot. So, Fred Copestake. Yeah, just do that. That, that. That'd be easiest, you know, mention that you've heard us on this. <laughs> so I know what angle you're coming from, what rant you might have heard us go off on. No, just, just say that. It's always, it's always good. And uh, yeah, you know, connect and ask me stuff. I'm very, very happy to, to share, sort of help people try and get their head around this, this whole partnering stuff. Because uh, like I say, you know, it's, I do really believe it makes a difference. And I want to kind of get that word out there. So yeah. I do and, too. And, and uh, if you haven't got hold of it yet, then Selling Through Partnering Skills by Fred, uh, Fred Copestake is well worth a read. Fred, thank you. Cheers, Marcus.
So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this and found it useful, then please like, comment, and share. And if you think uh, you'd be a good guest, then please ping me an email at marcus at laughs-last.com. Or if you know someone who would be, then uh, drop me a line and maybe connect both of us either via LinkedIn or email. Now, if you own or are the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow a business and achieve genuine, sustainable hypergrowth and have highly engaged employees, highly productive salespeople, and uh, a fully aligned marketing sales customer success operation, and clients who stick with you year after year after year, then let's schedule some brief time for a chat. And we can hop onto Zoom, and I'll put the link for you to be able to do that in the blurb on this podcast. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.